Okay, um, it's Brad Vallette, CEO of Hut6. This is podcast number three, and we're up for another treat because Ryan Castle is with us again, who was in the second podcast. But this time, instead of talking about, uh, I don't know, development spaces and GitHub and all the rest of it, we're going to talk about mental health. And I know within our industry, this is actually a big thing, I suppose in any industry, but one of the things about IT is that you can be quite isolated in what you do. And there's a lot more pressure um, than people realise in hard work, I suppose, sweat and stuff in the IT industry um, that most people don't really understand um, and don't really understand how, I don't know, how these things can affect you. Um, and I don't know, what, would you agree with that, Ron? Yeah, no, no I, I do. Um, yeah, and no, I think it's an interesting industry because I think there's some there's some reasons why people when they're younger who have mental health issues or particular sorts um, of mental health issues are drawn to the IT industry, and that was that's probably my story. Yep. Um, I don't think as a, a kid I ever thought I'd be a software engineer, um, but being a teenager is hard, and for some people it's really hard. Um, and I think a lot of people who find it hard end up in different kinds of social circles. Um, I think it's because you can wear a bit of a mask too. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the other thing too. I look at my own situation and the ability to be able to wear a mask and be somebody else yep. um, is a good thing, you yep. know, often at times. And I've got a 14 year old at home and he's very much an IT guy, you know, and so I'm always concerned about his ability to communicate with the outside world and all of those things, and some of those things have actually changed where that communication aspect, you know, COVID and the rest of it, has come down to things like Discord, you know, and I know that mm. when Jim became a gamer that I was always concerned about, yeah. you know, from the stories that you'd actually told me about your teenage years, yeah. being a gamer and being stuck in your room, and, and the same as Johan as well. Yeah. Um, but the thing is now, that ability to socialise while you're gaming is yeah. a big part of what kids do yeah um, which is awesome to see I actually remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's he's probably almost 70 now um, and I didn't really go to high school and his son was having issues with high school and spending a lot of time in his room gaming um, and he came to me one day the, the dad and said I don't know what to do he's not interested in school he's not talking to people he's convinced he's gonna become a professional game maker or a professional gamer and it's like, he's like, it's obviously ludicrous. This is not going to happen. Um, 10, 15 years later, that that kid <laughs> has made some of the biggest games on, oh, on this the is, iPhone. This is your multi-billion, billion, zillion friend, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you've told me about him. Sold tens of millions of copies of a game, which is not to say that everyone who wants to become a professional game maker will. Yeah. Um, but I, at the time, I said, I wouldn't worry about it. That's It's not the biggest issue a teenager has. If they've got their own social world yeah. in World of Warcraft, which it was at the time, or something else, yeah. that's a huge improvement over being completely isolated. Well, you want to hear something? Was it World of Warcraft? That got <laughs> we, uh, Erica and I did a presentation at um, uh, 42 Coding School in Adelaide, and the number one player of World of Warcraft was in the room. Wow. Number one. That's anyway, the, I went the most home. most famous person you've ever met. I know. I went home and told this to my boys. And Jim turned around and said, yeah, but that's a really old game. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, but he, he's like a god you know, to me. <laughs> I was never a gamer because I could never get past the whole, you've got to concentrate for more than five seconds. Yeah. You know, I'm a bit of a goldfish when it comes to that sort of when stuff. When I was 14 
um, years old. I think I was 12th in the world at a very, very esoteric game. And it wasn't Sims, was it? No, it wasn't Sims, much more esoteric than that. Um, and for a brief period of time, I had that on my resume. <laughs> now, is that on your resume, Erica? No, it's not. Okay. Um, well, one of the things for me was I found this industry good because it meant you could hide behind a mask. And even though I started in the creative side of things, I really embraced, and I still do, um, it very much touches my soul because I was one of those kids at school that um, my parents couldn't afford a computer and uh, my interest in it was the old TRS 80s, the tapes, and writing code so you could have your name going across the screen. You know, it'd take you like four hours to write basic and to go across the screen. And Eric and I have had these conversations and I remember at the computer lab here in Alice Springs at one of the high schools, um, we have a lot of Americans in town, and not so much families now, but back then we had heaps. And there was an Apple II Plus, the green screen Space Invaders thing. So I spent every single lunchtime um, in front of Space Invaders. Um, and it's funnily enough to end up back in this industry after a big sort of like roundabout way, um, I find quite strange. Um, and I suppose the mental health aspect of all that has been, I don't know, I just found my tribe. I found people that thought the same as me, felt the same as me. I didn't feel so different when I'm, you know, when I met you guys. But up until that point, it was very much like I always felt out of step with everybody else around me, mm. which really affected me because I wasn't that person that was traveling the same journey as everybody else. You know, wasn't thinking the same as everybody else. And I didn't end up a developer, but I kind of think like one. Yeah. I do think could like have one. Could have been one, Brad. I could have been one. Um, and I do find the, the industry really interesting. Mm. But as a teenager, I was the same as you. I didn't have any friends. I did, you know, I just. Hey, what do you think? <laughs> and I sort of found it difficult to communicate, and uh, I found all those things. But having worked in this industry, I sort of see that's actually part of what people are like. They I do actually, actually communicate, but they don't communicate. The IT the same. industry is funny because I people say it's filled with cynics, but I think cynics are just disillusioned idealists, and I actually think the IT industry is filled with idealists. Yep. Um, and. It's a very nice space to be. It's actually, most IT teams are very warm, you know, often very caring people. Um, you meet a lot of people who are not that comfortable socially. Um, no. And I've, I've definitely been one of those. Yep. But in terms of um, what kind of world you're wanting to create, I actually think the IT industry has some really good people in it. I do too, yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, I think we're in, we're in that golden age. I think the idea of that sort of separating the infrastructure and AWS and all these other platforms we've now got access to, and having met a lot of people through, you know, Lot 14 in Adelaide, um, I just, I'm very enthused, you know, that you meet these people that you sort of go, wow, you're doing that? Wow, that's amazing, you know, and it's, you're right, it's very much about that ideal type of thing, and it's not driven by money. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And to be, to be any good as an IT engineer, you have to be empathetic. Yep. You can't, if you don't care about people, if you don't care about users, you will be a bad software engineer. There's, so, and there's no way around that. So why do you think, and having seen this myself and with you and, and others that have worked here, why do you think depression is a big thing? Why do you I think, think that's the case? I think it's selection bias to a large degree. That I think it's, it's a good fit um, for people who were depressed for whatever reason. Um, I don't know if there's factors which reinforce that in our industry. Um, I think possibly there are. I think there's, we've got 
um, work ethic issues. So I think there's, there's there's a culture in our industry of working extremely hard. Yep. And if you're feeling down, maybe you bury you bury yourself in work. You work till midnight or or later. Um, I, I suppose it might give you intrinsic value too. Your self worth is in through that process. It is interesting that, because I think a lot about the gift economy, um, which we love. Like we love this idea of open source and the yep. gift economy and I obtain self-worth by what I can contribute to my community, which is really good, but it, it is also this extrinsic motivation for getting out of bed in the morning. It's, yep. it's partly driven by I'm not, I'm, I'm not enough on my own I need to every day go out there and prove to the world that I'm useful to them. And get validation. And get, get validation. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah, there's, yeah. A, that, there's a two, two sides to that, yep. um, that gift economy, yep. which it would be good for us to think about more. Um, I mean, great things have come out of that. And I think it's, it's amazing that people who maybe didn't feel like there was much they could contribute have this, this, um, this, this method or this way or this world in which they can contribute and in some type, sometimes change the world. Yep. People who are, aren't comfortable going to a birthday party, who can actually change the world. Yeah, absolutely. From, I mean, that's kind of what we've been talk, talking bedroom. about with Hut Six is the fact that you know I remember giving a presentation, um, myself and Erica, and saying everybody in this room has superpowers. You all have the ability to change the world. Yep. Every single person. Here. Um, and as soon as you realise that, that, there's greatness that will come from that. Do Do you think that um, I don't know? I suppose the fact that it is a bit like an iceberg. Everything that, as a software engineer, as a DevOps type person, it's like that 5% that people actually see, that the rest of it, they never actually see. It's like the masterpiece without the painting, in a sense. Do you think that that affects people? That's interesting, because my mental model of the, the tip of the iceberg doesn't fit that well with icebergs, because I think the tip gets bigger and bigger big and bigger compared to what's submerged. Yep. In terms of how much of the part underneath that people like us need to think about now, yep. it's almost none. Yep. Um, 30 years ago, you couldn't build any of the stuff we build now yep. because you would have been spending all your time trying to figure out the power supplies in your data center. That would have been your life. Um, and you wouldn't have built any software. You would have just been trying no, to get true, true. to run. So, so do you think that like um, software engineers' mental health will actually improve with the way that the scalability of all these different platforms have got now? I think I think our jobs are more rewarding. Yep. I think we get to spend more time um, building things for people, yep. rather than building things for other layers of engineers or or building things for other other systems to consume. I think we get to spend a lot more time building things for people to Cause use. Because because I certainly know that when I first sort of got got started in this, it's a bit different from my other life, which was all about advertising, which is very obvious. Um, that was the thing I found the hardest. That was the thing that I struggled with when you built something amazing, and people didn't appreciate it. And you were, and not that I was doing the work, but on, you know, working with you guys, um, I always felt a bit cheated, you know, and always felt a bit depressed, really, <laughs> that there wasn't the accolade. People would go, <laughs> you know, but what I realised was is that the least amount of noise someone makes is the greatest amount of accolade. It's true because it's about the least amount of noise from your your yep. customer and your client. Yeah. That's when you should be. If dead. you spend a month of work and somebody spends five minutes testing it, and they just give you the thumbs up, and the next day they're working, yeah, that's ideal. Yeah, you but that took me a long time to realise that, and yeah. I think that from a mental health point of view, mm-hmm. in the early days of Hut Six, 
I really, really struggled with that. Yeah. And I really struggled with the value that you would place on these things where people didn't place value back on it. Yeah. Because they compared it against well, whatever it might be off the shelf, like Microsoft Word or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's a really um, interesting, I think, tension there between innovation and creating value. Because for an organization of 50 or 100,000 people, innovating in new ways every day doesn't help anyone. Yep. Like, there's nobody that is going to thank you for changing the way they interact with their systems every day or every week or every month. Yep. Um, for, for them, for things to be useful, they need to be familiar. Um, change needs to be motivated. Like, it needs people yep. need to understand why you would change things. Um, you need to have continuity. Um, so, our, I think our industry is, is faced with this thing is that in general, people don't want change, they don't want you to innovate on their, their screens or their workflows because they have to go and learn them again. Um, and so we have to find that balance between building them good enough to begin with um, and not, not changing them just because we had some fever dream where we thought we'd redesign the, the invoice So where do, you, where do you think that, that, that paradigm shift for you and your mental health changed? You know, because you, you know, you'd worked for MI, MYOB and you'd done all these other things. And one of the reasons why you left the industry was before you started with Hut Six was because you didn't feel, you just felt depressed about all of this stuff and not really wanting to do it anymore. Uh, when, when do you think it changed? It's hard to get was it Was it the Docker moment? <laughs> um, Where you felt like what you were doing gave you that self-worth? I think, it, I think maybe, yeah. It pro probably Docker was the point where I thought, I th this, is, this is a home for me. Yep. If, I, if I had got to do this for the next 20 years, I think that would be pretty satisfying. Yep. Um, I feel like I could spend the next 20 years of my life doing satisfying, meaningful work with a good cadence, yep. where you're not going back and wasting a whole month rebuilding things or testing things or, or trying to figure out something. Um, I think Docker, Docker is a piece that lets you focus on the stuff you really care about. Um, so I think it was that point. I, I think I got excited about the future of IT, and I don't think I'd had that up until that point. IT was something, you know, you used to joke that I was in IT to, to help pay for my house construction project. Yeah, exactly, and, and go after the I Red Cross it. and stuff. And I think that was sort of, that was true to some degree, yeah. that I just wanted a job I didn't. Yeah, and I, I suppose um, for me, what I really struggled with was I'd come from an industry which doesn't exist anymore, retail, where you did an ad and you sold 10 fridges. That so was very intrinsically rewarding for the personality that I am. And then I moved into the space at, uh, with you guys. And websites are still in that space. It's still very much a retail. Person comes to you with an idea, you pump out a website. So, But it took me a long time to actually appreciate the value of um, what we do now hmm. and to see what we do now and to be involved in what we do now and to honestly believe in all that space, to know that we do have the power to change the world. Um, and there's some pretty interesting projects we're sort of in the middle of at the moment. Um, and to see that, from my perspective, gives me more value than the, the retail model used to. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's so different. So. What do you think about the risk-inverse nature of people who work in the IT space and how that then impacts their decision making? <laughs> I think I'm at, I'm at the very far end of that spectrum, so I don't perceive our industry as risk-averse. I'm extremely risk averse. Um, I, I think you have to be like, you know, you think of us like the aviation industry and some of the stuff we do is every bit as important. Not, not us personally, 
that as an industry, some of the stuff we do with every bit as critical as the aviation industry, which is you know notoriously risk averse. Um, I think it's interesting because now it has a reputation for being um, disruptive and changing all the time, and we don't care if it breaks; we'll just we'll fix it tomorrow. Um, and I don't. I think that's kind of an error. Like I don't think that that's sustainable for very long. I think it can can get you to interesting places in the short term. I don't think it's really sustainable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're just pessimistic, if you just everything seems too hard and you're like, no, it'll probably break, oh, we'll probably fail, oh, it'll probably go over budget, that's not going to help. You'll never get anything done. No, and it is an interesting model too. I and mean, we've gone slightly off topic here, but it is an interesting model like the, the agile methodology. Mm. You know, and then you've got very defined goals that corporate world wants or the NGO world wants. It yep. doesn't kind of fit. But you kind of have to do it the other way to get achieve the result, mm. you know. You know. I mean, you have to start with an agile training project where you train the customer, yeah, <laughs> in expectations, um, yeah. and what kind of um, engagement is going to be expected of them. Yeah, and and I've got to say, you know, I suppose just getting back to the original subject of this with the mental health, when we first started going down that road, and I'd ask you that question about when will this be finished, and I was very much used to that retail model. And I would walk away because I respected you and Johan so much. I'd walk away and literally go and cry in my office. Because <laughs> they'd be like, oh, I know what they're saying is the right thing, but it really depresses me to think. What are they saying? Oh, they th- in the fullness of time. So, you yeah. know, I'd go out and ask Ryan and Johan, and I'd ask them both a question, and um, Johan would just panic and or look really worried about why I was asking that question. and. Ryan would just turn around and say, oh, look, you know, it's um, not ready yet. We're going to get there when we get there. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> and I'd be like, but if we have it next Tuesday, well, possibly we could if all these things go to plan, but maybe not. And I'd go back to my office and just go, oh, I, don't know why I don't know why I'm stepping into this industry. I just, this is doing my head in. <laughs> I'm so glad I did, though. I really am. And I think uh, it's why the stuff we built in those days was so good. Yeah. Like it's... We built really good things that I think our customers loved using. Yeah. Um, because we didn't push them out um, prematurely. Um, I think we back, backed ourselves to build something good in the time that we, we spent. Yep. Um, that we, we didn't think we were a waste of time or money. Yep. And I don't think we were. I don't think at any point were we a waste of time or money. Um, and we didn't feel pressured to push stuff out prematurely. So do you ever regret doing what you're doing now? I suppose you don't if you've said that Docker was the changing of your life. Do, do you ever sort of think maybe I should have become a veggie farmer or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd be a terrible veggie farmer because I try to grow veggies and they don't grow. Yeah, and you can't really iterate a veggie, can you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I really like it. I really like the conversations you have with people. I like problem solving at that that abstraction layer. Yeah. Like I like solving problems. I, mean, I built this house with Google. I I didn't know anything about building houses, um, and so I, you know, learned about engineering f- with with Google, and it stayed up. It was good enough. Um, but I think if I'm thinking about the kinds of problems I'm most interested in solving, I think it probably is in the IT industry because you can build quite big things, you can build quite interesting things. You've got to build things that last a long time and can be changed over time. Yep. And they're really quite interesting parameters. Um, and on top of that, you get to talk to people about what they do in their lives, in their, their jobs, yep. um, and try and solve their problems. So I think it's a great space to be in. Um, 
I mean, there's probably others, probably um, like aviation engineering would be something similar. But. Yeah, but I suppose we'll just wrap this up. But I suppose the only you know, thing with aviation engineering, if you crash a server, you're not going to die. That's true. That's true. So that's the that's the take out of point. Unless you work for the department. Risk health. averse. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so we've um, not really covered the mental health. We kind of have, um, but this is uh, this is the second episode of uh, Ryan Castle's big day out in Alice Springs. Um, so I'm signing off. Brad Blett, CEO of Hut Six, and Ryan where people are resigning because their work doesn't suit them anymore. I would highly recommend Hut 6. Nothing is unachievable. The superpowers that they have can create a difference in people's lives.